Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you'll also find links there to follow the show in iTunes or via an RSS reader or on Twitter or on Facebook. It is a cornucopia of connections at thejazzsession.com, and you'll also find a mailing list. The mailing list is actually a, a pretty handy way to stay in touch with the show because it is the one way I have of communicating with all of you that is not dependent on the largesse of Facebook and Twitter. And given the way Facebook changes what it's doing every 20 minutes, uh, it's become much less useful a tool to communicate with. Uh, Twitter is still pretty good, but if you actually want the newsletter uh, to arrive to you somehow every single Monday, then the best way to do that is to become uh, a member of the mailing list, and uh, that's free, and there's never any spam or anything. And I won't sell your address to anyone unless I can think of somebody to sell it to. Uh, but anyway, you can do that at thejazzsession.com as well. There's a mailing list link right at the top. My thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com, and they've got a lot of great records that I encourage you to buy. My thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo, and you'll find him at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. This is show number 280, which means there are 20 shows left before the 300th show, which is either going to be a big celebration of reaching the goal of 100 members, or it's going to be the finale of the jazz session, and only you can determine that. Uh, so, please... I'm <laughs> not sure if you can hear the pleading in my voice, but please do become a member. Thousands of you listen to every episode of this show. It's been downloaded something like 1.2 million times now, and uh, I need at least 100 people to become members for this show to become financially viable enough just to exist. That doesn't mean it will be my job. Uh, that just means it will be able to exist. So please do become a member. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join, and it's, it's super easy. It's super cheap. If you want to join at the lowest membership level, that's 10 bucks a month, which I know may be a hardship for some people, but it's not for most people who listen to this show. So please do become a member. You can also pay in one lump sum of $110 a year, and there are membership levels above that too, by the way, uh, 25 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or $250 a year or $500 a year. And so far, we've had one person at a membership level above the lowest one, and it would be great to have some more of those people. But honestly, 100 people at the basic membership level would be just fine. And I want to thank James Eastman, Jeff Albert, and Nico Sofiato, who all became members this past week. Uh, Nico and Jeff have both been on the show before, and it's always uh, really nice when musicians who've been on the show, join the show. And they actually join a pretty decent roster of former guests who are now members, which is cool. We can make a pretty nice band or a, a good one-day festival or something out of the jazz session members uh, who are musicians. So thanks to them, to uh, James Eastman, Jeff Albert, and Nico Sofiato for becoming members. And you can go in the archives and check out Jeff Albert and Nico Sofiato and their interviews on the jazz session. This is... Episode 6, I guess, in the seven-part Cooker's Monday series, we've heard so far, not necessarily in this order, from Billy Harper, George Cables, Cecil McBee, Eddie Henderson, and David Weiss, and that leaves Billy Hart next week, and today's guest, Craig Handy, who has been on the scene for, you know, couple of decades now, although he is uh, either the youngest or second youngest member of the Cookers, depending on whether he or David Weiss is the older of the two. I think they're, pretty, they're quite close in age. Uh, and Craig has been on the road quite a lot recently with Dee Dee Bridgewater, and you'll find him in the Mingus Band and many other places. And today he talks about all of those things and just his experiences over the years in some pretty incredible bands. He's one of those people who has great stories to tell, and he tells them well. He's also one of those annoying people who has a really good radio voice, a much better radio voice than I have. Uh, the, the prime example of that in the Cookers Band was Billy Harper, who... You know, as I said, I think at the beginning of his interview, I kind of wanted to use some technology to shift his voice up an octave because it's so annoying listening to my voice next to his. And and Craig sounds really good too. So uh, if Craig and Billy ever uh, start a show, I'll be out of business. That's all there is to it. Let's listen to some music from the Cookers, and then we'll hear the interview with Craig Handy. Mm -hmm. 
My guest is Craig Handy. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, you know, let's uh, before we talk about the cookers or anything else, let's start right off. Uh, I learned in the elevator on the way up that you are readjusting after uh, a globe-spanning tour. Talk a little bit about where you've just been and what you were doing. Well, um, I'm working with Dee Dee Bridgewater on a project that's the Eleanor Fagan, uh, to Eleanor Fagan with love. I think it's, uh, it's called something like that. It's uh, Billie Holiday. Eleanor Fagan being her original name. Sure. Um, it's a uh, tribute to and a celebration of, of, of her life in music. And um, Edsel Gomez is playing piano, Kenny Davis is playing bass, and uh, normally it's uh, either Louis Nash or Greg Hutchinson and sometimes Jazz Sawyer on drums. So we've been going since uh, October of '09, I think, with that project. And uh, actually, James Carter's on the record due to two commitments um you know he hasn't been able to do most of the the touring stuff so it's ended up in my lap and which i'm not complaining about because it's <laughs> a great band and she's a lot of fun to work with that's great and tell folks uh, where you just were we were just in malaysia and australia and <clears throat> normally i'd say that's great but we had to go through dubai to get there <laughs> <laughs> so let me just tell you on the way back it was a 14-hour flight from sydney to dubai and a 13-hour flight from dubai oh man to jfk <laughs> And so, <laughs> I don't think I've ever spent that much time, you know, in a in an aluminum tube, with five hundred other people. We were on one of those um, Airbus three eighties, which is like the new uh, double decker sure. um, arrangement. So the first class and business class is upstairs, and the economy is downstairs, and and there's a lot of room in between the economy seats. So normally, I I would you know they'd have to put me in a straitjacket after I got off of a of a flight that long in economy. But there's actually uh, some improvements that they've made over the you know, over the last uh, redesign of the interior of that particular uh, configuration. So, so it was it was bearable. Though there's a couple of times, you know, when you look out the window and you just think, you know, if I open the door and jump out, I, you know, I wonder if I land in somebody's swimming pool because I just can't take it anymore. <laughs> right. You know? So, uh, yeah, a couple of times I thought I might lose it, but I, I managed to. Uh, I managed to keep it together. Right, we didn't read about you in the news, the uh, <laughs> the, the Craig Handy situation at JFK or anything. Yeah, exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, just sticking on the uh, on the the Dee Dee Bridgewater project for one more second. Has has playing that music did it did it cause you to go back and and reinvestigate the source material at all, or did it expose anything to you that you you found surprising? Or? Um, I I probably did in the very beginning go back a little bit <clears throat> to to listen to a couple of uh, things, but. But Edsel did all the arrangements, mm -hmm. um, and he did such a, a great job of reinventing a lot of that material that it, you know, what I would have gotten from going back and listening to every single original piece would not necessarily have translated into something I might have used, although I'm sure it's always great to go back and listen to it. When I was playing with Roy Haynes back in the late 80s and um, early 90s, I spent a lot of time listening to that same repertoire because he used to play with with all those people sure. um so you know he used to sing the words to all the songs you know he would you know sing a sing an a or a chorus or of songs that he had remembered when he was working with Dinah washington when he was working with uh sarah vaughn um you know um various people and he loved all the billy holiday stuff so i i just said okay well if he likes it i'm just gonna go check it out and at that time i was you know it was like right on the i was right on the the cusp of starting to really appreciate like Coleman Hawkins and, and uh, Ben Webster and Lester Young. Um, uh, you know, Lester Young was easier to gravitate toward for me when I was in high school, but but as I was in my 20s, I started going back and checking out more more Ben Webster because he played a lot of ballads. And of course, when you're 20 years old, you don't want to play ballads. You know, you want to you want to get on the roller coaster and, uh, and take the seatbelt <laughs> off and stand up and scream. So. You know, it, it took a while, but, you know, finally by my, my 30s, my mid-30s, you know, I, I really digested a lot of that material. And, well, you know, people tell me that they, they hear a lot of that in my play when I play ballads. So I guess a lot of it's in there already. So it was it was, uh, it was was great to get back into it, though. It's a lot yeah. of fun, you know. Cause, and, and with these musicians, you know, you can do anything in the context of, of, um, of the form of the song. And, you know, with Louis Nash and Kenny Davis and... Uh, Edsel Gomez, you know, they're going to make it work, you know. And even Dee Dee, she told me when the when I first got in the band, she said, listen, don't think of me as a singer. Think of me as another horn player in the band. And I thought, well, that's great. You know, now, you know, I can, like, riff with her and, you know, get together with her and get in there. 
And then I got on the gig, and the first gig we played was, I think, at the San Francisco Jazz Festival in uh, October of '09, um, Davis Hall, or no, maybe it was the the um, Exploratorium, Palace of Fine Arts, something like that. And I was listening to her sing, and then I would, you know, play a little obligato behind her, and then she would say something else, and then I would play behind her. And that's the way I've grown up playing behind singers. It's like, don't cover the lyrics up. Sure. Because otherwise people are not going to be able to hear it. And on the break, she came to me and she said, do you want to keep the gig? And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> she said, I, I'm, I told you to get in there and fire it up. Now I know you can do it. Now let's go. And I was just kind of like, so you're not just paying lip service to the idea of like playing with a horn player? And she said, no. And and that's, you know, subsequently I found out, you know, a bit about her history, um, how she came up in New York City under the tutelage of people like Dizzy Gillespie, Thad Jones, uh, Cannonball Adderley, and all these great, you know, Hank Jones, all these great musicians that were around. When she would show up, well, like a lot of musicians would do this, when, when, when up-and-coming uh, musicians would show up on their gig or established musicians would show up on the gig they'd, they'd invite them up on stage to sit in and I forgot about this because I grew up you know I mean I came up in New York I was around uh, when that was still going on and that was like half the fun of going to the gig is seeing who was in the audience and right. who was going to show up and who was going to sit in and what was going to happen and that was pretty much you know uh, part of the show you know uh, and especially when she was coming up so she got invited up to, you know, sing with, with everybody. You know, even singers would invite her on the, on the gig. You know, Betty Carter, show me, she, uh, Betty Carter invited her up on, this, on stage. Um, and um, so she really does have that affinity with, with, the, with the horn player and with the instrumentalist in the band. She is just another one of the guys, basically, in the band, although she's a... Uh, I don't know if I can say this on, on air, but a bad A and then, you know, the rest of it. This isn't the radio, so you can say whatever you want. She's a badass. <laughs> she, she is really incredible when it comes to, um, you know, soloing and, and, um, and, you know, even like within the context of just singing a melody. I've heard her sing, you know, Lover Man, like, I don't know how many times now. I've heard her sing, um, you know, all the repertoire we do. Every time she does a song, it's different. She never goes back to the phrase that she said, oh, I like that phrase. I'm going to sing that phrase again. I, I follow her, and I try and keep up with her. But it's like, you know, there's always that point where I like, it's like a skateboard, you know, slip on a banana peel. You know, it's kind of like, whoops, oh, we're going to get back down, you know, somehow gracefully because she will turn it and flip it and, and sing it so many different ways uh, that it's, it's amazing, you know, that she can come up with you know she's just it's just like free association it's just it's flowing out of her it's like when Sonny Rollins plays you know she has that ability to just keep it flowing and and not get stuck on anything that she's done before and like go like well I think I'm gonna go back to this thing because I really like the way this sounds and it's you know it's always amazing so half you know the first few weeks the first few months even that I did the gig I was I I had to remind myself that I wasn't in the audience and that I was on stage. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I was supposed to be playing and not just listening to her sing. So we're, we're having a great time still, though. So I'm That's really great. enjoying it. to go back to uh, what you said about playing ballads uh, several people have said on this show uh, that you know anybody can play fast and burning which of course is a bit of an exaggeration but that it but that ballads are often the thing that really expose a person's musicianship and command of their instrument uh, you know especially ballads that are where the time is so slow somebody said on this show recently you know you can you can go up and get a drink between the beats you know in the ballad <laughs> that kind of thing that might have even been billy harper i can't remember but uh i wanted to just ask your opinion about uh, about ballad playing and what it demands of you as a musician 
I think it's uh, something that I gravitate toward naturally. Uh, if I had my way, I'd just play ballads all night long, but I'm sure everybody would be completely bored. So, um, uh, you know, my father told me when I was about 13 years old, he said, he says, you know, I'm listening to your practice and you're playing fast and you're playing your scales and arpeggios and you're playing like as fast as you possibly can all the time. He said, why don't you slow down and play something pretty and play something nice? And I thought about it and I said, I know how to do that. I don't have to practice that. I got to practice this other stuff, though. So years later, I, I, I realized that it was something that I, I thought about um, that I really didn't have to figure out how to understand playing a ballad. I think it's something that comes naturally to me. If anything, I think over the years, I've probably maybe um, lost some of my ability to, to play slow because I have been playing fasts and other you know like learning how to play other kinds of music you know and so when I get back to a ballot sometimes you know I think my uh, my ADD kicks in and uh, you know it's like uh, in the last 20 years I've spent so much time in front of a computer screen it's kind of like you know I've, I've become addicted to the the uh, the 10 second uh, you know video and sound bite on the screen right. so it's like kind of like I have to get back into the mood of playing a ballad sure um, it's something that I, I always enjoyed, though. I used to play uh, with Roy Haynes. We used to play ballads a lot, and uh, he loved ballads. And, you know, Dave Kikoski was in the band, and Ed Howard's playing bass. And, man, we used to crank out some, you know, like in a sentimental mood. I mean, we'd have the, the audience would be weeping by the time we'd get done, you know. And, and Roy's so dynamic when he plays a ballad. You know, he can just whisper, and all of a sudden he'll crack the snare drum, and he'll be like, oh, my God, what happened? <laughs> So and he does it just the right time. So, um, yeah, it's something I, I always, you know, really enjoyed doing. And, and maybe one of these days I'll, you know, make a ballad re recording, you know, of all ballads. Yeah. Over the course of uh, these are the most recent interviews that I've done, so which is why I'm coming back to them. But over the course of these cookers interviews that have happened recently, a couple of the guys have said that they've, uh, you know, they've noticed over the years that their playing has become about what they've stripped out mm. as much as what they've put in. And I wonder if you want to comment on that in your own experience. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, you know, in the last maybe three or four years, maybe three years, three and a half years, <clears throat> I've um, I started playing piano again and actually started practicing a little bit, you know, just to, to try and get some facility so that when I sit down and I have an idea that I can actually sort of bang it out and not get stuck completely uh, with the lack of technique and so um, um, I'm actually kind of relearning a lot of stuff and looking at chords a little differently and, and uh, putting more back in to the pot than stripping it out Sure. So I, I would have to say if anything it's going the other way for me I've been adding stuff to the pot uh, which, is, which is an interesting thing because you know when you listen to old recordings of yourself like 15 or 20 years old you realize that some of the things that you do, you still, you did back then. And, you know, it was even more clear back then. It was kind of like, wow, I, I, I did that back then. I was like, wow, I can't, I didn't even think I knew that back then. So there's actually a lot of stuff that, that you forget about. So um, in that respect, yeah, stuff does get stripped out, but not necessarily intentionally. Sure. For me anyway, it's just <laughs> like I just had no idea I even knew about that 25 years ago. I right. Just, you know completely uh, surprised myself. I guess I was practicing it when I was in college or something, you know, and it just came out on a recording someday, so, yeah. What's sending you back to the piano? What's, uh, what's fueling that? Well, for writing, um, and piano's always been something I love, just the sound of it, the ability to play more than one note, the ability to, to play harmony, uh, because playing the saxophone, the most you're going to get is a polyphonic occasionally and, and mostly one note you know, single note uh, melodies and whatnot. So <clears throat> it's hard to, uh, it's always been difficult for me to write on the saxophone because of that. Mm. I know Greg Osby's told me he's done it. Uh, you know, I think Sonny's probably certainly done it. There's been a lot of people that probably can do it. And a lot of people probably don't need the piano to write. Uh, I think Billy Harper told me that he writes maybe all of his stuff on, on the tenor. Um, but it, you know, I started on piano. Piano was like uh, when I was eight, I think I was eight, when I started piano. So in terms of organizing my thoughts, it just works better on piano for me because I can see everything 
and uh, you just get a bird's eye view visually as well as orally of what's going on so um, if anything I get too uh, hung up in the the you know the harmonies and which notes to um, to you know which notes to change in the chord or something like that you know it gets very detailed and if anything it gets a little bit too detailed sometimes so you know actually I, I try and and uh, when I play saxophone sometimes just play simply but you know it always kind of goes back to the same thing where I you know it's like like what well, my father said you know it's like you know, it's a thousand notes per minute you know right <laughs> uh, it's hard to pick out a melody you know sometimes because you know there's so much it's so easy to play the saxophone compared to a lot of other instruments you know like violin you know you you want to play a scale and tune in violin you better practice 20 years you know? <laughs> on saxophone it only takes you know 20 minutes or you know 20 days or something like that you know and then you've you've got a lot of it under your fingers already so if anything the piano allows me because i don't have that much facility to to think more compositionally sure to kind of break out of the the finger memory muscle memory exactly right yeah are, are you finding this is a, a fertile writing period for you is that what's inspiring the Un, unfortunately not i mean it, it, going back maybe about nine months ago you know i started working um with dd and then last year we you know prior to that i, I guess from around 2007 or so I, I started practicing piano and started um writing and got back into it but as of uh you know, October '09. You know, between Dee Dee and other people I've been working with, that it just—I had a really, really good, busy year. Sure. And um, I, you know, I really didn't get to, to spend sit at the piano at all. You know, actually, on this last flight that was 27 hours in the air, <laughs> I was thinking I should have brought a keyboard on the on the plane with me because you know, then I could have sat and and um, and, uh, and got some work done. You know. Yeah. But. Uh, didn't occur to me <laughs> until, until like you know I was on the second middle of the second flight and I was going crazy. <laughs> you, uh, you're a guy who has, uh, in addition to your own projects, you know, done a lot of work in sax sections and and playing with larger ensembles and that kind of thing, which also seems to me to be a very particular kind of a skill. Is that something you f- you feel like you had to concentrate on to be a guy who could fit into those? Those not, contexts? Not really, because when I was in college, I played in the uh, uh, North Texas uh, big band system. And you had to go <clears throat> basically sight read for an hour every day. And in the beginning, you know, I sucked. It was terrible, you know. And then uh, as time went on, I got better and better. It's like tying your shoes. The more you do it, the, the faster you get and, and the better you get. So the guys that can read really well are usually guys that spend an hour or two every day reading, you know. Sure. Um, it's just like doing anything else so in that sense when I got to New York I'd already been doing that for a couple of years and I was pretty confident at it if anything you know even in high school um, I used to play in a, a, a an orchestra called the Bay Area Wind Symphony which was um, basically like an orchestra that was composed of all wind instruments that you know um, you know I didn't think about it at the time but somebody had spent an incredible amount of time transcribing orchestral arrangements for strings onto, you know, um, woodwind instruments and, you know, of course, including brass. Uh, sure. But, um, you know, it was, I mean, there probably were 30 or 40, you know, uh, instruments in the band and somebody had to lift them all from the orchest- orchestral arrangements and, you know, rearrange them for, for these instruments. So, um, you know, the reading I did in high school got me, prepared me to be able to, to read to get into that band the audition and then the reading I did there prepared me to you know go on and do things like the, the lab bands at North Texas uh, eventually played in the one o'clock and lab band at North Texas and uh, so my reading was was pretty decent for uh, for those years anyway you know yeah uh, I haven't done it in quite a while but you know the thing that you, that you still remember are the the musical parts of it like the phrasing the the holding out of a of a phrase you know not cutting phrases off uh, uh, dynamic control through a phrase, um, you know, um, and and punctuation through articulation, that kind of stuff. The the actual part of it that's difficult for me now, since I haven't done it in so long, is just you know actually reading the notes, right? You know, getting the notes together because I've been playing so many different kinds of note combinations that I've been grafting from solos that I learned from when I was a kid until recently, and then also ideas that I have that 
are contrary to what I have to read. Right. So for me, it's kind of like, no, no, my, my brain's telling me, no, 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 don't, don't play that, don't play that. You know? <laughs> and my eyes are going like, we have to play this. And my fingers are saying, uh, well, should we play it? So there's like three conversations going on in my head. Sure. I'm trying to read the music now. Do you have to, to some degree, when you're playing in a in a section, is there some amount of like checking your ego at the door so that, except when you're soloing, your your own personal expression maybe isn't as much at the forefront as whatever that kind of collective sound is? I came up playing in sections, and there was no ego involved. Sure. It was like, you make the music sound as good as the writer intended it for it to sound. And if you get a really good arranger, you can make it sound incredible. You know, like, like I did a... Uh, <clears throat> I think for the Monterey Jazz Festival when I was in high school, uh, one year I was inducted into their all-star um, band, which is they took all the schools from California and they made a, one big band out of out of all the best players in California. Okay. And uh, our guest artist in residence was Slide Hampton. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's at the top of the arranging pool, right? Exactly. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, the first day we got there, we were all fooling around, and, you know, we were all, like, you know, 16, 17 years old and just having a good time and talking about girls and blah, 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 this and the other. And then the, the next day, Slide shows up, and he sits there for five minutes, and he's just looking at us and doesn't say anything. And all of a sudden, we're like, uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, <laughs> he's like, and he kind of lays it down. He's kind of like, he told us a little bit about his, his personal history and about the history of the music, and it was just kind of like everybody just went, aye, aye, skipper. And uh, and then he pulled out Show Enough and uh, a couple of other <clears throat> um, songs from the, the Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie songbook. And, and everybody was kind of like, okay, you the man, you know, this guy. And and everybody played their parts within their sections. And, and you know, we, we struggled to get all the notes because, you know, it was a lot of stuff going on. But, um, you know, the, the level of musicianship was high enough so that we could make it uh, I think we can. I hope we made it sound decent, if if not good. But there was, you know, that was the kind of situations I was born into playing. So there was never anything about the ego, you know. Right. In those situations, you know, and I had enough of those where people that were much better readers than me and much better musical interpreters than I was. Uh, so I was always, you know, on the playing catch up with with these people that were. Uh, um, probably really 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 super good interpreters of, of written music uh, whether it was classical music or, or jazz or, or whatever it was and so you know we always uh, I never thought about it in terms of, of ego now I, I don't think that anybody that I came up with ever thought about things in those terms you know we always tried to make it sound as as uh, as um, you know like if five guys are playing the section we try to make it sound like one guy right you know and because that's much more powerful than four guys playing and, and all you hear is one guy playing. You know, it's 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 not musical, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a time and a place for that, for sure. I mean, the Dominguez Band uh, is proof of that. Uh, Dominguez Big Band, there's ways of playing within the uh, within the arrangement and within the within the specific idea that the composer has for a particular tune, you know. Um, there's a way of, of, of sort of playing your part as a solo. And but it has to be written that way, right? And so Mingus was probably one of the people who did that, who who wrote not always linearly, but all, but wrote um, horizontally, you know, and wrote lines. You know, Thad Jones used to write lines. You know, he didn't stack chords on top of each other. He would stack three melodies concurrently running. You know, and they made chords, right? <laughs> 
not that he didn't understand harmony, but that way is much more difficult to write from. Sure. And, you know, he was a genius at it. So, um, uh, but there there are ways of doing that too as well. So, but yeah, no, I didn't grow up with uh, with any ego about playing in the section. No. Yeah, that it's interesting. I mean, would have it, been, it would not have been tolerated. Right. It, it, it would have been removed from you quickly, right? Yeah. No. It, it's interesting because you. Uh, I, I mean, would have had the erasure thrown at me. <laughs> that's, that's right. Loaded if with you're, If you're lucky, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in so many uh, different contexts. I mean, it, it seems to speak to speak highly of you as a as a person who plays in service of the music, because it doesn't seem like you could be in so many different contexts like you're in, unless you were someone who was thinking of the music first. Well, that's a great compliment. Thank you. Um, I guess it just speaks to the the, the way I was raised and um, the way the way I was taught from you know particularly like um, there was a, a, a high, my high school band director Phil Hardiman who's passed away since uh, was one of the you know one of those unsung heroes that was responsible for getting a lot of people uh, getting their head straight when they were young. I'll give you an example like um, uh, Benny Green, the piano player. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in the system. Uh, Peter Applebaum was another uh, incredibly talented musician uh, who was also in that system. Uh, Stephen Bernstein, who works with Hal Wilner, you know, was another guy that, that was in that system. Um, and there were guys that went to L.A., <clears throat> like Tony St. James. His original name was Tony Jones, but he played drums. So no, his, his original name was Tony Williams. But he changed it to St. James because he played drums. Sure. Obviously, he didn't want to be confused with the... The other Tony Williams. Um, he went to Los Angeles. Um, Rodney Franklin was another guy who was a, you know kind of a smooth jazz player. He went to Los Angeles. Uh, and there's a host more I'm leaving out, but <clears throat> um, basically Phil Hardiman had the um, he would sometimes teach at three different schools, like the, the 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 grade schools, the middle school, and then the high school in the afternoon. So he would you know. He did this for 20 years, so he had this, you know, right. this farm basically where he was like, okay, this is the guy, Duke Ellington, okay, you know, saxophone players, check out the saxophone section, you know, I want to know each name of each, you know, musician and what they do, and he went through this same thing with every section and rhythm sections and, and all the instruments. So, I think that <clears throat> um, if you came up under him, then you know you pretty much knew what music sounded like by the time you were, you know, 15 or 16. You know, you were like. You know, it's like growing up in any place where there's there's a, a living tradition of, of the music. Um, and there was a lot of that going on as well. We had great musicians and teachers in uh, Ed Kelly, a uh, great piano teacher that was in the area. Um, um, there were, uh, Joe Henderson was also living in San Francisco. John Handy was living there. He was teaching at SF State. Um, um, <clears throat> uh, Hal Stein was a great saxophone player who was, uh, I didn't study with him, but I, I know that he used to teach a bit and, and he was a great um, saxophone player as well as a teacher and so there were a lot of and there were you know there was enough gigs around so that you could put it together and kind of make sense of what was you know music was supposed to be like of course you have the records too you know uh, to refer to but um, there was there were great people that lived in and around the Bay Area and there's a lot of people that came to the Bay Area you know through like Keystone Corner like Todd Barkin had you know that was so, you know. That was kind of like my church, you know, when I was growing right. up. I mean, you know, because um, after I stopped going to church with my grandmother, after I was like, you know, whatever, fourteen years old, I started going to to uh, <laughs> the nighttime to the, service. Exactly, right? yeah. the nighttime <laughs> service. I used to go to to check out the Keystone Corner. My father would take me over there, and we we heard like, you know, like, I mean, Woody Shaw and Dexter Gordon and, and uh, Hank Jones, and I mean, the list goes on. I'm like, it's like. Pretty much named anybody who was traveling in the late seventies and, and uh, you know playing music and and they had to end up there because it was you know there was a circuit that you could travel from the east coast to the west coast and there were places that you could play all the, all along the way and a lot of those places have dried up since and the Keystone Corner was one of those places that you know had a fanatical um, um, constituency you know and the people that worked there um, I've been finding out in recent years. Uh, who are still around in California are people like Jessica Felix, who who runs the Healdsburg Jazz Festival uh, annually in Healdsburg, uh, California, which you probably haven't heard of. It's a small little town, but you know 
all the heavyweights go there because she knew all the people that used to come through because she worked at Keystone Corner and she was a big jazz fan. And so her and her um, um, partner at the time, Ken Schubert, they had a thing called Jazz and Flight. And it was like one of those community-based programs where you know they would host musicians traveling and they would say, well, you know, you, you probably need to lay up for three or four days because you know you, you have a gap. So right. we'll organize a concert for you and we'll put you up and... You know, and by the way, by the time you leave here, you'll be our best friend. So it was one of those situations, and it just, it, you know, I mean, everybody in the cookers knows her from, um, from those, from those days, from right? those days, yeah. And and it goes, and the list goes on, and so she has this wonderful jazz festival every June, which we're actually getting ready to go to. There was a definitely a lot of, uh, you know, music to be heard, and you know, you could you could figure out what it was that, you know, that you wanted to do based on what you were seeing out there. And so, you know, the only ego I ever saw was actually Freddie Hubbard um, one night when, when he got locked out of the Keystone Corner. <laughs> <laughs> and he came around the front and he, like, you know, he uh, banged on the box office door and he said, back door for Freddie. So that was like, I was like, wow. You know, I was probably about three and a half feet tall and he was like this big, huge guy and I was looking at him going, wow. <laughs> You, uh, you mentioning the cookers gives me a, a nice segue to ask you what your experience has been like uh, playing in this band. Oh man, well I I, uh, I got to shake Dave Weiss's hand, you know, right after this interview's over, because right. uh, <laughs> I got to thank him for for uh, you know putting me in the middle of this this amazing group of musicians. I've worked with a lot of these guys um, in different projects over the years, uh, but never all of them in one room. Uh, at the, and on the same stage, and it was the first time I actually had the chance to work with uh, Billy Harper, who you know I've always dug, but now uh, you know I have a new level of appreciation for him. So um, it's you know it's been like a dream. You know these guys are are the best of their generation of musicians, and uh, and they were journeymen too. So they picked up you know all the you know I mean. God, all the all the information that they have could fill you know a wing at the Library of Congress. You know, it's just an incredible uh, um, coupling of of all of these people. Yeah, you can play like six degrees of separation with any one of them, and you put them all together, and there's almost no one. Yeah, who you can't get to pretty quickly from exactly. <laughs> from one of those guys. Um, David, uh, who I interviewed ten minutes before you showed up, so it's fresh in my mind, said that uh, for him, one of the important things was. You know, getting next to people like this, people who represent, you know, the the apex of the music and who are still here and who are still playing at an extremely high level. I wonder if that's something that that hits you too. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, for me, that experience, you know, I understood that immediately when I started playing with like, um, uh, well, with Roy Haynes. I was playing in Roy's band. Um, Before you finish telling this story, can you just answer? I have a theory. My belief is that Roy Haynes is actually a robot. Do you think that that is <laughs> is that really the truth? Or he's immortal? I can't tell. He's like a, it's another alien he, race or something like that. He, he might just, be immortal. Yeah, yeah. He might be okay. part of an alien race. Uh, have some de- some 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 foreign DNA. Yeah. For there's sure. no way he's he's not human. No. That's not possible. No. No. I don't yeah. think so. No. no. Okay. Good. Yeah. Well, that's two of us. Good. Yeah. Sorry. So please, as when you started playing with Roy. Um, well, uh, yeah, it became immediately apparent that you know um, that there was an enormous amount of information to be gained from playing with with elders Mm. um 
<clears throat> and uh, also, you know, one of my first gigs in New York was, you know, I got into three bands like pretty much in the same month. Um, Abdullah Ibrahim, um, Dominguez Dynasty, and Roy Haynes. And at that time, Dominguez Dynasty <clears throat> was Jimmy Nepper, Danny Richmond was still alive. Um, um, let's see who else. John Handy was in that band. Um, let's see, James Newton was playing flute. Um, I don't think we had, we had a drum player. Not sure. I mean, later on, I worked with Jack Walrath in sure. that band. Uh, George Adams. George Adams, in, right? He wasn't in that particular band. Okay. But later on, we worked together in a band <clears throat> that was just two tenors, me and George, and Jack Walrath. And so it was like, okay, here, you know, <laughs> here you go, you know, here's the information, you know. Um, same thing with Jimmy Nepper. Um, great arranger, incredible arranger, very subtle, very sneaky, unbelievably, you know, gifted. Um, and, you know, so... There was all this information um, just coming at me, you know, in gangbusters. And it was kind of like, well, you know, nobody ever said, well, this is what you do. It's just like you just got on a bandstand and you just tried to keep up, you know. And every night, you know, you just try to keep up. And eventually it, st it starts to sink in. And it takes months and years and of, uh, of playing with these guys. But, you know, eventually it really starts to get into your bones and you understand how it's how it works you know it's like you know nobody ever sits down and, and says well this is the allegro section this is the saraband this is you know you know none of that it's just like here you know it, <laughs> no no life preserver and it's throw you in the deep end and and you basically you know develop your style you know of uh of dog paddle <laughs> right until you can do the crawl and the butterfly so um yeah it was it was a uh, was it nurturing, intimidating, a combination of both? Both. Uh, both. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, intimidation was actually part of the of the of the uh, the learning process. Sure. Because I'll give you an example. Like you know, the best examples are, are of um, Betty Carter. You know, I never played in her band as a as a regular band member, <clears throat> and I was fortunate enough to record a couple of records with her. I was had a very good relationship with her, um, but I've seen her demoralize. You know bass players and piano players on the gig um, so and she does it on the microphone she stops the song says are you having a problem you know, <laughs> oh man and you know what are you going to say you know you just have to be there and just go you can't say anything there's no answer for that and so it's like if she's not hearing what she wants to hear you better figure out what it is that she doesn't like and you better figure it out fast and believe me, I don't think anybody ever makes that same mistake twice. Because once you've been handed your ass that way in front of 500 people or 5,000 people, it's kind of hard not to remember that sting, you know, yeah. of that lesson. So it's very effective. It's very intimidating. It's very cruel, but it works, you know. Um, you might call it an enhanced learning uh, <laughs> tactic. <laughs> so... Um, that was a lot of that going on, and, and then of course you know you, you know guys used to yell at you all the time. You know, um, people would would raise their voice. You know, now it's like you can't say anything to anybody, you can't offend anybody, you can't say anything off color. You know, you can't be politically incorrect. You know, but but back then it was just that was just uh, par for the course because that's the way they learned, and by and large that's you know it you know it it, it everybody turned out fine. I mean nobody's. Uh, you know, uh, an action murderer or anything like that. Right. So, you know, I mean, you have a, you get your feelings hurt, but that's sometimes you have to, you know, in order to learn the lesson. You know, I mean, one. I'll give you a quick example. One, one, one of my first trips to Paris, I was playing with Roy and <clears throat> Roy Haynes, and and we, you know, Kikaski had told me, he says, now listen, if if you know got to learn all these songs you got to learn the melodies to these songs and he gave me a list of songs and he says if for whatever reason you know you don't know the melody just tell Roy you know if you're not sure about like something he says just tell Roy before we start we'll play another song and sure enough what happened was that like you know on the bridge of one of the songs I got a little bit iffy about the melody and 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 so Kikoski said look when Roy rubs his hand on the the big tom the big um, tom the tom tom that means, you know, and he'll still be playing time, but, you know, you hear the rub, you know, and that means we're like, 
the song is winding down and, and when we get to the last day that we're going out we're not going into the solos we're going out because something happened in the head he heard it he didn't like it and <laughs> that's it you know? wow we're going to the next song and so i heard that you know in the middle of the set and i'm like we're playing this song and i heard him and i heard that rebel i'm like oh yeah we're, we're going out now and i'm like all geared up to play a solo and i was like damn okay and um then you know, I turned to Roy, you know, to look at him, and he gave me this look, like you, you know, you mf, <laughs> you know, how dare you get on my bandstand and jive and play some shit that you know, that's not cool, you know, and so of course it puts you on edge, you know, um, and I don't even remember if we tried to start another song, or if he just said I got it. He said I got it, and then you know I didn't realize that that meant like get off the bandstand like physically walk away from me, get off the bandstand. Wow. And so that's what he was telling all of us, you know, but basically me, because I had messed the melody up. I think I didn't move fast enough. He looked up at me again. He says, you know, I got it, you know. And so, you know, everybody else was like putting the bass down, getting up off the piano, like getting off the bandstand. I'm like, oh, shit, okay, here we go. He proceeded to play a 20-minute drum solo, which, of course, got... <laughs> You know, right. I mean, the roof caved in because people were clapping so loud. I mean, it was a small club, but I mean, you could like drown Paris out with the noise that they made in there. And it was just kind of like, what am I doing here? You know, why am I on this bandstand? You know, really makes you think like, hmm, okay, uh, got some homework to do. It's so interesting that that's uh, such a parallel story to one that, that Eddie Henderson told on his episode. And I asked him what I'll ask you, which is, what what was it about you that made that situation survivable rather than the last, rather than being your last gig or whatever? What what inside you, what did you want that made you realize, okay, this is another level of discipline now that I have to attain, and I'm willing to put in that time. Well, it was just so much fun playing with them. I mean, even though it was nerve-wracking. The first year, I couldn't figure out. Ralph, I got the gig from Ralph Moore, tenor player. Mm -hmm. And Ralph told me, um, he said, you know, the thing I learned from Roy is that, um, you know, he distilled it down to one thing. He says, he taught me when to jump. And I didn't quite understand what he was saying, but... When I got in the band, you know, his beat, his time, you know, like I sat in with Elvin a few times and Elvin was like really easy to play with. You know, he's got a big wide beat, same with Buhena, R. Blakey. So, you know, it's easy to fill him. But Roy was like somewhere on top, but still swinging, you know, really hard, you know. And it, it took me like months and months of playing with him to really figure out how to play with him and how to get in there. But once I did... I understood what Ralph was saying. He says, you know, because a lot of what Roy does is just, he'll just go into a song, you know, or he'll just start counting off something, and, and as he's counting it off, he'll announce it to you, you know, on the bandstand, <laughs> you know. And, and you got to come in in a way that fits with the time that he's playing. And, um, and then sometimes, like, he'll play a drum solo in the middle of a, of a song. It's like maybe you've played the song and it's on the way out and you're vamping, and he'll play, like, a, we're playing a, some kind of a 6-8 Afro-Cuban rhythm, and he'll do his thing on the hi-hat. And then, you know, you have to jump back in with the melody at the right time. And, you know, his, his time is very elastic. And it's kind of like you have, to learn, you have to learn how to feel it, 
basically. Right. And if you put a metron on it, it would probably come up pretty much where it's supposed to, but it don't feel like that because eight bars is sped up to the middle and then drawn out on the last four bars or the last two bars. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like it rushes up to a point like a wave and then it crashes and it spills over the box, you know, over the beat. So his his time is like that and it really teaches you the some of the subtleties and intricacies of, of feeling different kinds of time. Is uh, that forcing you to really be present, to really oh, to always be engaged? Never that guy is like 120% present and engaged. You know, he's the guy that taught me how to how to read an audience. You know, how to feel what they're feeling and like, is it time to play the ballad or no? You know, usually it's the third tune, but you know, it might not be time. You know, you know, maybe you haven't got them yet. You know, maybe you need to play something else. Maybe you need to play more standards that they recognize maybe this audience you can just play all original music you know it's like he's so in tune it's incredible you know he's so in the moment and that's what the thing is about like when you come back in with the melody it's got to be strong and it's got to be on time and that's what made that band so electric you know i think and that's why i didn't you know it wasn't my last night playing music because i mean i realized that if i got it right it was going to be like you know the second coming you know, it was just going to be incredible. And it was. And, and 99% of the time, it was, you know, it got to be something really, really special. Do you find, uh, I have to believe the answer is yes, I guess it's probably a stupid question. But do you find as you go through your career that you keep coming back to a lot of those things that were your early experiences that keep informing who you are uh, as a player? Those things you learned on those bandstands? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's impossible to separate yourself, you know, from your experiences um so in that sense things always make sense to you in terms of what you learned uh when you were coming up um, um let me ask you a smarter and more interesting question than that that was a terrible question let me fr- put it back this way given that that must be the case do you also see things ways in which you separated yourself from that young man you were and created your own person, your own way of being on the bandstand, your own way of moving in the world. Well, the thing for me is that what, you know, the the thing I had a hard time dealing with for many years was, was, you know, um, whether or not to be a member of the jazz police. Right. You know, so it's kind of like you, you, you listen to a group play or a record or, you know, what somebody's doing and you say, no, you know, then you'd be the voice of no. <laughs> you'd just be basically like, no, 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 that's not good, no, that's not good, no, that's not swinging, no, that's not that. So what I had to learn was to be more open and to um, see what it was that was true about what somebody else's experiences meant to them and the way they interpreted them. And so that could mean a host of things. I mean, it could translate into a host of different things about the way they play their instrument. But what I think is more important is... is where your idea and where their idea meet and whether or not it's valid for you mm-hmm. and uh with a lot of people that have lived in new york you know i can play with people that have been here and maybe i never played with them but you know maybe they've been here 20 years and learn how to play or 30 years or whatever and we have enough common experience to just go up and hit and we can sound great but there are also people that come from different parts of the world that don't have this experience that that I've had and that a lot of people um, in America have grown up with having. Um, so then it, then it becomes a, another question of like, well, you know, you know, and you know who really kind of taught me that opened me up to that was Herbie, Herbie Hancock, because I played with him for four years in his quartet. And I slung personally so much manure his direction <laughs> As, as a tenor player that you know and, and because I was nervous it's like you know when you're nervous you just talk a lot because you don't know you don't you know you don't want to you know you don't want like the thing you know no dead no no dead air you just want to keep talking and just keep it moving and just go blah, blah, blah. so you know I was so nervous for a period of time when I was playing with him that I would just sling him like you know anything that just came out no editing process oh more information more fodder boom 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 here we go and he had a way of like seeing what was interesting and 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 enhancing that in real time and so eventually i slowed down and, and i went like wow i can i can kind of go anywhere with him i can just hold one note out for eight bars and he's gonna make it sound like the best thing you've ever heard you know and so i learned to trust him 
and I learned uh, to be more open to different ways of interpreting things because he came at you know, I mean it's like you know Manny Pacquiao, this this mm-hmm. Mexican boxer. Um, at least I think he's Mexican. I know he's from Central America or South America. I'm pretty sure he's Mexican. I saw him beating up this guy one one day on TV, and at the end of the fight, you know, he was throwing like so many different kinds of punches. You know what I mean? Like he was coming over the top, over the left, or the right, under undercuts. You know, um, what do you call them? The the ones from the side, right? You know, Hooks. I mean, and different angles. And it seemed like he was a spider all of a sudden because you know they showed it from a certain angle, and it was just coming from everywhere. And that's the way Herbie approaches music. You know. He doesn't do it necessarily all that fast all the time, but what he can do is he can think of a completely different, fresh way to approach something every time he steps to it. So it doesn't sound like it it sounded last night mm. or, you know, last week or, or, you know, 25 years ago on the record, you know. Um, you know, he has so many different ways of understanding how to get to something. And oftentimes, it's not complicated, but it's just so strong and so personal that, you know, it's, and it may be something that you would have never thought of, you know, but it just kind of opened me up and I said, wow, well, there's a lot of different ways to look at things, you know, it doesn't just have to go like this. Well, my, uh, my final question to you is my standard final question, which is, there's something that you've, you've read or seen or heard, it doesn't have, a, have to have anything to do with jazz uh, that's inspired you recently that you want to share with other people? Or it doesn't even have to be recent, really. But just hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, and I wish I could remember what it was because there was <laughs> something recently that that really inspired me. Um, well, uh, I'll just tell you because I. I can't think of the, the most profound thing <laughs> that I probably should say right now, but um, I have to say that I heard Aaron Goldberg's trio with Greg Hutchinson and, and Ruben Rogers uh, in Australia when I was on a night off when we were down there. And, um, you know, he really inspired me. Um, there was some things that he did that were really very interesting. And I've never heard him play in a trio set. I mean, I've played with him in quartet and, and quintet settings and larger settings, but... But, and I've always known he's a great musician and, and an amazing piano player, but uh, there were some things that uh, he did that really made me think, you know, like, ah, new idea, you know, another way to approach something. Um, and, and also the same goes for um, DeVell Crawford, another piano player out of New Orleans, uh, kind of a multi-instrumentalist and singer as well. But I saw him perform with his band, actually, at Yoshi's in California recently. And uh, it kind of reaffirmed <clears throat> something for me that as as much um, as a sort of dyed-in-the-wool New Orleans musician that he might be, he was still, you know, he was singing the way we were, like, you know, uh, he was singing... Stevie Wonder tunes, you know, because he he said that, you know, he doesn't play clubs a lot. So in that setting, he felt really comfortable and he just kind of let everything go, you know, and he would just go into these songs. And it was amazing because the band didn't have any music. They knew all the songs, you know, they just it was just music, you know, and it was like, wow, you know, that's such a a refreshing kind of uh, thing that I don't have the luxury of, of getting to do all the time because most of the music that I play, I'm on the page. Sure. You know, unless I'm playing quartet or playing my own music or I'm playing in a small group with somebody, if I'm playing with other horns, you know, it's on the page. And and there's been very few times that I've been able to get off the page in a larger setting that, uh, you know, that, that I just got to do that, you know. And when I did, it was amazing. It was incredible. You know, if, if the whole band can get off the music, off the page, you know, um, and then the music starts to really happen. My guest is Craig Handy. It's been a real joy talking to you. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Thank you, Jason.
My thanks to Craig Handy from The Cookers. And even though this is the second time I've recorded this segment of the show, I forgot again at the beginning of the show to announce the contest. That was pretty much why I re-recorded the show, the the, uh, introduction, I should say, because I forgot all of the credits at the beginning. And I forgot them again. So uh, if you'd like to win a CD from The Cookers signed by all the members of the band, I won't forget to actually mail it to you. Uh, to do that, send an email to contest at thejazzsession.com with cookers in the subject line. Contest at thejazzsession.com with cookers in the subject line. If you're the first person to do that, you will get a CD in the mail, and they'll all be going out uh, in a couple weeks after the final one of this uh, series. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Have I mem... Have I membered? <laughs> it's on the brain. Have I mentioned that I need 60 more members in the next 20 shows to keep this thing going? I actually need 61. But it's easier to do the math if I tell you that it's 60 in the next 20 shows, because that's three members for every show that airs between now and August 11th. And then either August 11th will be a, a grand celebration of our collective success, or it will be the finale. And I was deciding whether to make the 300th show like a, a retrospective <laughs> in case this thing doesn't work, um, or whether I would maybe just schedule a really killer interview. And I just booked a really killer interview, uh, which I may hold to the 300th show. I can't quite tell. That seems a little sadistic, you know, like the end, if the show doesn't fly, to make the 300th show just this great example of what could have continued to be. But I'm kind of a sadist. I might, I might do something like that. And apparently I've attracted a lot of sadist listeners as well because otherwise you'd be joining and taking this stress off me. So anyway, become a member if you would. It's cheap, it's easy, and uh, you can do it very quickly at thejazzsession.com slash join. And you don't even have to remember slash join, because if you go to thejazzsession.com, you'll see the links right there. All right, that's it. Get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye.